hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. So when I was a teenager, I was a little bit of a, I guess rebellious isn't the right word because. My parents were pretty permissive, but I was rebelling against something and just like hanging out with the older kind of bohemian prep school crowd, lots of like Stussy jeans and backwards English driving caps and, you know, marijuana. And so I was kind of like trying to keep up with this crowd of like really bright, but also like kind of wayward teenagers. And, you know, often what would, what would happen is we would go out into the woods, although it may be not the best word because like in Santa Fe, I mean, there are woods, but like where we were, it was more just like sandy hillsides with pinon trees every every eight feet or so. And I remember really vividly, like I think one of the first times I was hanging out with this clique and we were going out on the hillside behind this guy Hank's house. And, um, you know, there was, no, there was no path, but it was like pretty clear in the moonlight that everybody was sort of getting there just fine. And I just like walked directly into a pinon tree and people were like, wow, you must be really high, man. You know, and I think I kind of laughed it off and I was like, yeah, whoa, crazy. But like the reality was, I was like, I'm not that high. Like I'm just having so much more trouble than everybody else doing this. That's writer and audio producer Andrew Leland. He's recounting the first time he noticed there was something going on with his vision. And it's not like it was a sudden thing, you know, but it was just sort of like I, there were certain environments where I noticed it, like at the movies it was a similar thing, like kind of imperceptibly, I just noticed at some point around that time, like maybe 16 years old or so, I was just like, oh my God, how does anybody ever go to the bathroom in the middle of a movie? Like, why would you subject yourself to that? It just seemed so hard. And then when I would try to talk to people about it, I, I think I just like had a way of like always sounding like I'm joking. And I think they were just like, yeah, haha, it's, it's dark out there, buddy. And I just kind of felt confounded by it. And my mom, I remember saying like, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's hard to see at night, but you could, it was almost like I wasn't trying hard enough to see, you know? And then my dad bought me a modem around then. And I was doing early like America online message board stuff. And like, you know, this is long before Google was born, but it was like, you know, web crawler or some search engine. And I kind of diagnosed myself, you know, just searching night blindness. And it was like, if you have night blindness in your teenage years, here's one reason you might have it, is this degenerative retinal disease. And it was kind of strange, because like I wasn't really going to see a retinal specialist or anything. I was just sort of going about my life, but I just sort of was like, yep, I probably have that. And then as it got worse, and like the night blindness went from being like sort of annoying and confusing to like, you know, should I even be driving at night? You know, that's when I think my mom realized that 
I wasn't just sort of being weird and stoned and abstract teenager saying something imperceptible. But she was like, maybe we should go to a retinal specialist. And so then I went and he was like, yes, indeed, retinitis pigmentosa. There are two types of receptors in the eye that are responsible for the sense of sight, rods and cones. The cones are in the middle of the eye and are associated with color vision. And then on the periphery are the rods, and those are what you use to have peripheral vision and also night vision. And so RP is a disease where the rods start to die off. And so that's why it's so gradual is because like by the time I was 16 or 17, I'd probably only lost you know, I don't, I don't know how to quantify it, but like, let's just say a handful of, of these rods. Right. And so my central vision is perfect. I see just like I've always seen, but like in low light situations, my night vision just isn't as good. And then over time, more rods die and it becomes more dramatic. And then, you know, this is what the doctor told me when he was diagnosing me. He was like, eventually then the cones start to go too. And like around middle age, you'll be blind. And so that was sort of the the prognosis that I got at around 18 years old. Andrew's journey of becoming blind truly began on that day with the diagnosis of retinitis pigmentosa, or RP. Now more than two decades later, he's written a book, The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. The title is taken from the H.G. Wells science fiction story of the same name. Andrew's book is about his own experience of progressive vision loss, as well as the world of blindness and disability, which he's been slowly becoming a part of since that nighttime walk in the woods. I mean, back then, I don't think it affected me very much. I don't think I acted too differently than I otherwise would have. Like, I still went to parties, and I still... I mean, back then, I even still drove at night, you know, before I was diagnosed. And even, I think, after I was diagnosed for a while, I was like, this is harder, but I can still do it, you know? And thank God... I didn't have an accident. In retrospect, I think I probably should have stopped driving at night immediately. But I just kind of like muddled through, both in terms of driving, but also just like at parties. And I think I used humor to kind of fight through it a lot. Like I remember I just had this catchphrase. To call it a catchphrase is kind of ridiculous. I would just say, I have severe night blindness. But I would say it in this kind of like dragnet, kind of like deadpan, you know, like I have severe night blindness. And I remember my friends would often interject and be like, he really does. Don't worry. Like, you know, they would have to explain, like, he's not messing with you right now, you know. But I would just like say that constantly when I was out. And that would be my sort of protective mantra. I have severe night blindness. The humor helped, but only to a point. One time at a party, I fell into a pool that I didn't know was in the yard that I was hanging out in, which was like very, very embarrassing. And I tried to like play it off as a joke. So as soon as I climbed out of the pool, I like jumped in again to show that I was being wacky and like going in the pool with all my clothes on because that was funny. But you know, behind that joke was definitely like really intense embarrassment and confusion and sadness and just like being bewildered. Andrew's bewilderment grew as difficulty seeing at night intensified and expanded. In terms of how my vision has changed, you know, it's definitely gone from I have trouble seeing night. Like to say night blindness is a little misleading too because it was like very hard to see at night, but I could still see plenty of stuff. And I can still, like at night, if there's like a ton of sodium lights or something, they illuminate things real well, right? And I can see that. So I'm not like full on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde where I just like turn into a monster at night. I, I, somebody told me about this word, the nyctalops. 
you know, which is like Cyclops, but for the night, I guess it literally means night blind. So there's this like mythical creature called the Nyctalops that is me. But over time, as my vision got worse, like night blindness went from being like hard to see at night to just like, wow, I cannot see anything in a, any low light situation. And that's sort of where I'm at now. It doesn't take much of a low light situation for me to just really be operating on non-visual grounds. The nature of Andrew's night blindness is such that in the span of hours, he can go from having some difficulty seeing to becoming blind. You know, like last night I was hanging out with some neighbors in our backyard and when they showed up, it was light. And then we we were standing around talking for probably an hour. And over the course of our conversation, the sun went down and it got dark. And it was interesting because like my place in the conversation, I mean, it didn't change, but like socially, suddenly I, I went from being like a sighted person to a blind person. Like, we were talking a little bit about blindness, and there was a guy who was like, well, you're not visually impaired, right? And I was like, actually, yeah, I'm legally blind. And he was confused because he had seen me, like, making eye contact with him. But then by the time he left, I, like, couldn't see him and, like, knew where he was by the sound of his voice. So when I think about that moment, there was, like, a moment of anxiety and a moment of embarrassment. Like, I heard my dog, and I felt for him, and I, and I found him once, and then there was another time where I kind of felt for him, and he wasn't there. And I was like, did anybody see me like groping for this dog blindly, you know, and did I look weird doing that? But those moments have gone from being like things that I will obsess over to now I brush it off and it's, it's pretty minor. With RP, it can be many decades of gradually diminishing vision. And one of the challenges for Andrew has been knowing where he is in that process at any given moment. It's funny because when I was diagnosed at the Jewel Stein Eye Clinic at UCLA with my mom, the doctor was like, can you see stars? And I was like, um, now that you mention it, no. And my mom, you know, that was like this kind of dramatic moment, like you can't see stars. But for me, it was like, because it's such a gradual process, there's like very rarely a moment where like a milestone hits you. It's always like a judgment call. You know, it's like, People are talking about a constellation and like I can see a third of it, you know, and then next time I try, I'm kind of like, uh, ah, I guess I can see a star on the other part of the sky, you know, and then a couple years later, I'm just like, yeah, I don't see stars and I don't really even try anymore. And so it's really impossible for me to, to pinpoint a moment like that. So, you know, I think if you calculate the percentage, I'm seeing maybe like 5% of what a healthy retina sees. And what that amounts to is like severe tunnel vision. So if I'm looking at something and it's in decent lighting and I'm like the right distance from it, I can see it just fine. With some caveats, because there's like associated conditions that I've got that often come with RP where there's like my macula is kind of messed up too. So even my central vision isn't great and I have cataracts too. Like there's basically your eye just, I think it's the kind of thing where it's like a little beleaguered and other things start to happen. So yeah, like without those other things, I've got five degrees of decent vision, but then the vision is like not great. So it doesn't look like looking through a tunnel because your brain gets used to it. But um, yeah, it's really, it's like surprisingly difficult to explain what you see. For many fully sighted people, myself included, when we think about blindness, we envision living in an endless night. Andrew writes in The Country of the Blind, despite the poetic impulse to equate blindness with darkness, it is rarely experienced as a black veil draped over the world. I think the way that we think about blindness is in really starkly binary terms. 
blindness, you know, if you look it up in any dictionary, it's the absence of vision. And yet, the experience of blindness is is really to the contrary. It's a spectrum. And only 15% of blind people are what the clinicians call NLP, or no light perception. And even people with no light perception describe experiences of basically your visual cortex is still doing something often. And so there was a guy who wrote about his experience after his optic nerve was severed, which means like the monitor is unplugged, right? If your optic nerve is severed, there's no light and no information from that light coming in. But he described it as like a visual tinnitus, you know, like the ringing that some people hear in their ears. It was like that, but in his eyes, just like this sort of like kaleidoscopic display, even though there was no, no light coming in at all. And of course, that's just the people with no light perception. And and then there's this wide range of blind people who, like me, who might actually have visual acuity and actually see in the sort of traditional sense. But but then there's also, you know, people who see very blurry or see the inverse of what I see, where they have some peripheral vision, but the center is blurry or not there or a sort of patchwork. And so, yeah, the idea that blindness is, is just like pure darkness, like you see, you know, in the darkest night. It's, it is pretty much a fiction, although like poetically, it's still really appealing. And even even blind people, like, you know, one of the greatest writers of all time, let alone blind writers, Jorge Luis Borges, has a book called Poems of the Night, you know, that he wrote after he lost his vision. And, and he wrote about how it was harder for him to sleep after he went blind because everything was this sort of bluish mist. And so I, kind of ironically, when he was sighted, that's when he could actually experience darkness and blindness had sort of in fact, robbed him of darkness. While blindness does not equate with darkness, night has been intertwined with the progression of Andrew's blindness. So those two experiences do feel similar to me. Just like the way I I have to inhabit the world is different. And it started out at night for me, but then it's sort of like encroaching into the day. My experience when I first started noticing that I had night blindness was like suddenly I had to figure out other ways to do the things that I was used to doing. You know, like... Normally, I could just like walk across the yard and not worry about walking into a tree, but now I got to figure out how to do it. You know, and then nowadays the cane helps with that, right? The cane will hit the tree and I don't have to worry about it. And then, you know, when I think about blindness sort of writ large, like now I have that same experience during the day where, like, without the cane walking downtown, I'm going to like kick a toddler and a dog and go head over heels over a fire hydrant or something. One of the surprising things that Andrew discovered as he entered more and more into the country of the blind was that its borders are often not clear. He struggled with whether he had, in fact, arrived at blindness, and also with how other people perceived him. It's interesting because, like, a fairly universal experience of blind people in public is of being called out. And it doesn't matter if you have no light perception or you're like a low vision person. If you walk around a city with a cane for long enough, you'll get it. And, you know, somebody saying some version of like faker, you know, or like, you're not really blind or like you can see, you know, there's a whole horrible corner of the internet devoted to fact checking Stevie Wonder's blindness. So I think about that idea of too blind to be sighted and too sighted to be blind a lot. Imposter syndrome is one way I think about it on both sides. Like I'm kind of faking blindness and I'm faking sightedness sort of, I can't win in that way. And that has been the most important part of this process of coming to terms with blindness. I think in some ways, it's like a question of identity for me. Like, 
can I legitimately lay claim to it? Do I have to introduce myself as a blind writer, as a legally blind writer, as a low vision writer, a visually impaired writer? And I think where I've landed now, the place where I'm happiest, I think, is where I just accept that I'm blind. You know, I have a friend, Will Butler, who's blind, who, who said to me in a kind of like a tough love way, you know, Andrew, like you might be going blind for a really long time. And at a certain point, you might just have to accept that, like, you're blind and you might be more blind, you might be less blind, but like you're just blind. And I, that's a really powerful idea. And it's hard to, to hang on to because I'm just like, right. But I'm also watching The Mandalorian with my son and like we don't have audio description turned on and I can see it. So like, aren't I a faker? Like going on a book tour to talk about blindness when I can watch the Mandalorian with my son without audio description, you know, but then I kind of reassure myself and I'm like, nope, you use a screen reader and a white cane and you need those things. And like blind people need those things. Identity is only one of the gray areas involved in blindness. Another subtlety is the idea of becoming blind as opposed to going blind. This is an idea that I also got from my friend, Will Butler, who really resisted the idea of going blind and the way that that phrase has embedded in it. It's just like real sense of focusing on the loss of it. It's like you're just being ejected out into outer space in like a, you know, burning spaceship's escape pod or something. And, you know, and Will suggested it's more of an arrival. And, and that's a really powerful idea that I find to be true. And I, you know, I want to be careful not to bury the real difficulties of it you know, the emotional difficulties of going through a transition like that. And also just like the difficulties of being blind, you know, the sort of barriers to access and the stigma and all that. But like the reality is that, I mean, it's sort of like almost so obvious as to be not worth saying, except for the fact that like very few people recognize it, but it's just like when you're blind, you're still yourself, you're still a human, you still have everything that that entails. It's just like you have to do things a little differently. I'm still myself. I am having the same trains of thought that I'm very used to having, that I've been having for 40 years, and the same kind of like urges and the same wandering daydreams. And like, what do you know? It's still me. I'm still here. And that's sort of what arriving at blindness means, I think. It's a different place. You know, the book I wrote is called The Country of the Blind for a reason, because I think blindness does have this whole special culture and practices and history, but also ultimately at the end of the day, you're still the person you were. You know, and I say that specifically about the experience of losing vision. Obviously there are people who are born blind, but one commonality I think that I've heard from, from blind people is that at that point where you arrive at blindness or where you're sort of comfortable with it, like it, it disappears in a lot of ways. And there's a really wonderful blind writer, Georgina Klieg, who wrote that on some days it matters less than the weather. You know, it's just like, I feel like you can compare it to any number of things, like having arms, right? I mean, this is maybe, maybe this is a bonkers comparison, but like many times in the, during the day, you're conscious of having arms and you're glad you have them. But like, you know, there's probably long periods of the day when you're totally unaware of them, of, of being of an armed condition or, you know, like being a man, like at some parts of my day, like, yes, I'm very conscious that I have the qualities of being a man, but like great swaths of the day that is not anywhere close to my consciousness. And I think for a lot of people, that's where blindness ends up. I think the greatest difficulties reside in the transitional moments when you have to adapt. And that's the sort of confounding thing about this particular disease is that it's this constant process of adaptation because 
I'll kind of adjust and get accustomed to a certain level of vision. And then, you know, a couple months or a couple years will go by. And in that very imperceptible, gradual way, I'll suddenly be like, oh, crap, like this isn't working anymore, like the way I was doing this. And that is, that is tough. And that, that extends beyond the practical stuff about like, how do I cook? How do I walk around with safely, you know, to like relationships? And I think that is also a source of pain. You know, it's one thing to like encounter assholes on the street who say ignorant things and, you know, like it makes for good fodder to write an essay about it and it bums me out for a couple of days or years. But, um, you know, it's a lot tougher, I think, when like the people in your life have to make the same adjustment. And I think the reality is that like if somebody is losing their vision, their family and their loved ones and their friends have to make adaptations too. And part of it is just like figuring out how to be around a blind person in a way that is, you know, accommodating, but not intrusive, not condescending or, or paternalistic, but also sort of conscientious. And that's like a really fine balance and it's different for everybody. And, you know, it's one of those tricky things where like I had to figure it out for myself in order to be able to communicate to other people what I needed. Andrew would never deny the challenges inherent to being blind, but he does take exception to the idea of it being tragic. There's no question it's a nuisance to, to, to be blind in a, in a world where most people are sighted, but that's all it is, right? It's not a tragedy. It's not, it doesn't actually change who I am. It's like it forces me to deal with some things. There are these like profoundly destabilizing moments that feel like tragedy. And so it requires patience and acceptance and like being willing to sit with the, the negative feelings to get to the other side of it. And I do think like you have to sort of acknowledge that pain to get to the the place where it, it just becomes a nuisance. You know, it's not just like, you know, take the pill and then you will like, you know, suddenly wake up and everything's fine. You know, I, th I think you have to kind of earn that conclusion and you have to do a lot of work to get there. And so I think that's like the work that I'm doing and writing has been a helpful way to get there, but also just like losing vision is, is a helpful way to get there and then having lost vision for long, you know, just living with it for longer. But I do think that like, if you do that work to find your way to that place where you can like really authentically accept the good things about it, like those rewards are real. And for me, I mean, there's many that I could list. I think one thing that I've experienced that I've also heard from a lot of disabled people in general is like a feeling of empathy, I guess, like, like a sort of a greater sense of connection with people who are marginalized in some ways. Like, I think I lived a very privileged existence, but I think having the experience of being excluded from being able to access some things, like it wakes you up a little bit to that in a way that if you don't have to deal with those experiences, you don't maybe pay attention to them as much. I think another thing that I've always believed is that constraint is the avenue towards creativity. And then I think the results are often like really exciting and like disability kind of functions that way, I think. Like, yeah, it's a constraint, unmistakably. Not being able to see or not being able to use your arms or not being able to hear, you know, those are all conditions that in a world where the majority of people do those things, it's, it's a constraint. But like time and time again, those constraints lead to really fascinating and incredible and actually like world changing ideas. And to use the example of blindness, technologists like Ray Kurzweil were listening to blind people say 
the biggest problem with being blind is that I don't have access to print unless somebody is like painstakingly brailing it out. And he was already, Kurzweil was already interested in the possibilities of machine vision and basically working on that problem specifically for a blind person, you know, that leads to the birth of optical character recognition, you know, like the first flatbed scanners and then the ability of computers to, you know, take a page of print and scan it. And then a couple steps later, you have searchable databases linked together in the internet. And there's, there's, there's so many stories like that. Like the typewriter was first invented as basically a machine for blind reading and there's, there's example after example like that of like the way that the constraints of disability lead to radical transformative technologies and ideas and movements that, that affect the whole mainstream world. Since RP is a gradual progressive condition, Andrew has had time to practice being blind, wearing sleep shades to simulate what his experience will eventually be like. The concept of mindfulness has been valuable during this process. Meditation practice is actually really good practice for blindness. And specifically because I think becoming blind, like like losing vision, puts you in this situation where you're just like totally thrown off balance and like the world that you thought you knew is suddenly different, you know? And I'm like, I can walk to the bathroom in the bar independently and then suddenly I'm in a bar and I'm like padding all around the wall and I'm not even sure if there's a bathroom door on that wall. There's a way to to approach that situation with anguish and embarrassment and like just be sort of like shut down or you can sort of have curiosity about it. And I guess I use the word mindfulness in part to just like think about encountering the world with curiosity. And like when I was doing sleep shade training, it was the same thing. Like the first time I went and did a street crossing, it was like a completely overwhelming experience on every level, like intellectually, emotionally, um, physically, you know, you're just like, you're supposed to somehow understand how to align yourself to hit the opposite corner while there's trucks roaring by and like, you get so turned around that like suddenly you like forget which street is the one that you're crossing you know it's like bonkers but then like you know if you can calm yourself down and like really just pay attention to everything like to the street to the sound of the cars to the feeling under your feet like it really just grounds you in the moment and then that's the practice and you just do it over and over again until by the end of the month of that of that training i was like ah i feel the gentle slope of the sidewalk and i know i'm approaching the low spot of the curb cut and like hmm, those cars sound like they're surging, you know, and like you just like put it all together and, and, you know, and included in that is like the emotional part and like, this is scary, but like, I've got this, you know, and I'm just going to like slow my breath and, you know, calm the, the F down and all that kind of gets put together to like a successful street crossing or like really anything you try to do as a blind person. Andrew has a couple of concerns about sharing his particular experience of becoming blind. The first is that this is his experience, not to be confused with some generalized experience of being or becoming blind. There is such a thing as a blind experience that we could generalize about, but also blind people are are like people in that there is a radical diversity of experiences and attitudes and situations where... I don't think this is true of like every blind person that they're like savoring the slowness of life, you know? I think there's probably like really constantly pissed off, stressed out, anxious blind people who would totally disagree with everything I just said. Another concern is about people not believing him when he talks about his experience. One thing that I was sensitive about or kind of worried about in being really public about this experience and writing about it was that people were going to perceive it kind of like the guy who 
when I was walking by him on the street was like, you can see. And, but like more of like an intellectual version of that, like people being like, you, you're freaking out and you think it's a tragedy and you're just writing and like, you know, podcasting and, and just talking about how it's actually like a enlightening experience as a way to console yourself. But like, we all know that you go home and are filled with terror every night, you know? And I think I just like, I have that fear of that, of that perception of me. And, and probably there's a part of me that like, that's just me talking to myself. Like, aren't you actually terrified? Like, what, what are you bullshitting about all of these enlightening, you know, mind expanding experiences? And I think the reality is that like, yeah, there, are, there, there is still that slight electrified current of terror, like running through the whole proceedings. And that like, I get myself to a place where I feel really accepting and excited and energized by the experience. And then I'm like, but if I were to lose this remaining vision, like that would totally flip my rowboat over and I don't know how I'll deal with that. But that feels like an undercurrent. And, and the main feeling that like, I return to again and again is that bigger feeling of the power in accepting what life hands you. And, you know, I think there's stuff that ought to be raged against, you know, there are injustices and I'm not saying that like you should just accept everything, but I think there's, you know, with skill, you figure out what the things are that are losing battles that aren't worth fighting. And for me, you know, like it or not, my growing blindness is something that is not worth fighting. And I'm much more interested in figuring out a way to like embrace what's happening to me. And, you know, it's possible that part of that is a self-preservation impulse to say, well, it's kind of like sink or swim. And if I don't embrace it, I'm going to like live a small and terror filled existence. But I think what I've found that's powerful is that regardless of my motivations, as I embrace it, like very real and like kind of unmistakably rich ideas and experiences come to me like the, the the people I've met and the histories I've learned and the just the feeling of connection and and really of expansion that I've felt about just like my world has has gotten bigger and people blind people talk about how your world gets smaller and there there is a real truth to that literally like there are things that you lose access to but the thing that I feel really strongly is that with those closing of doors, uh, other doors open. Like just thinking about using touch, like my relationship with, with the tactile world has, has really expanded. Like I can now read with my fingers, which is like a really beautiful experience that I really treasure now. And, you know, and, there's, and there's, there's many other experiences like that. Towards the end of The Country of the Blind, Andrew writes, My hope is that this book will encourage the sighted reader to discover the largely invisible terrain of blindness, as well as other ways of living and thinking they might not have previously considered. I felt that sense of discovery reading Andrew's book, of a much, much deeper understanding of and compassion for the particular experience of being blind. At the same time, his journey of loss and discovery felt familiar in a much more general way. Moving to a new place it is like a transition. And in some ways it feels radical, like you leave all your people behind, you know, you have this completely new environment, but then you are still yourself, you rebuild your life there. And so it's like sort of simultaneously radical change in your life. And also you're just like sitting in another room and you're the same person. And I think people have that experience all the time in all kinds of transitions, whether they're like 
more quotidian, like moving to a new city or like becoming disabled or losing somebody, going through a divorce, you know, being forced to leave where you come from. The experience of transition writ large, like from the very large to the very small, always includes that experience of fear of the unknown and then like actual like experience of the unknown and kind of like being thrust into the situation and then adaptation and then this sort of paradoxical concluding place where you're sort of like everything has changed and yet I'm still here and I just think that's been my experience of blindness and and that's been the experience of becoming disabled that I've heard from so many people and also I just yeah I see it in so many aspects of of life going through transformations like that. There's a Borges quote that I think about all the time and quote at every opportunity, which is, you know, blindness should not be seen in pathetic terms. It's one of the styles of living. And I do think like a flavor, it's a, it's a style of living. And, and just like any other style of living, there are going to be challenges. There's going to be suffering, but also there's going to be joy and expansiveness and pleasure. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Andrew Leland's memoir, The Country of the Blind, was published by Penguin Random House and is out today. I'll post a link for him on our website, nocturnepodcast.org, in the show notes for this episode. Thank you to everyone who supports Nocturne on Patreon and PayPal. If you'd like to find out how you can support the show, go to nocturnepodcast.org support. Nocturne is a proud member of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, a group of smart, well-crafted, independent podcasts. One of those podcasts is Rumble Strip, which I really can't say enough about. If you haven't listened to Erica Heilman's beautiful Peabody Award-winning show, you are missing out. The latest episode, The Civic Standard, is hard to explain, but beautiful to listen to, and really a wonderful example of how Erica locates and polishes gems of humanity for our listening pleasure. Find Rumble Strip wherever you listen to podcasts and check out all the other shows in Hub and Spoke at hubspokeaudio.org. Till next time, thanks for listening.